Hello, hello. Hey. We're back for another transactional love episode with one of our mutual dearest friends, Kelly Grace Thomas. We'll be talking about creativity and matriarchy, creation over destruction, healing in words, the yeah. lifespan of art, yeah. and the transaction of literature. Mm. Words, thoughts, philosophies, ideas, beliefs, yeah. and how we transact on that as consumers. Can't wait for you to hear it. Hello, Norma. Yeah, we're back. And today we have Kelly Grace Thomas with us. In person. In person. Say hi. Hi, y'all. You can't (laughs) see me dancing, but I'm doing a little booty shake. (laughs) And she is a published author and poet and all kinds of amazing, extraordinary things. I see her in the coffee shop all the time. We constantly are bumping into <laughs> each other there. And every time we check in, you're working on something different than the last time I talked to you. So it's really cool to have you so we can learn more about what you offer the world. Um, and what's great is that you and Norma met separate from how you and I met. You and I met because I did the flowers for your wedding. Mm-hmm. And I don't even really know how you found me. Through Heather Farms. Okay. We really wanted like yeah, yeah, yeah. sustainable flowers. Yes. We didn't want one who was that. like butchering flowers hours without love yeah before you lived in this is before yeah before I moved to Benicia before the shop had a Benicia storefront I'm always curious about that time before but then we just all landed in Benicia because you weren't living in Benicia then either oh no I I was living in Walnut Creek yeah Yeah. all here now yeah (laughs) and then you had the shop opening Mm -hmm. yeah my mom had moved to Benicia yes and she held up the paper and she's look who's in Benicia with a shop we have to go to the party (laughs) yeah we did and it was just amazing and it's one of my favorite pictures of my mom aunt sister and mm. I it's in yeah. front of your champagne wall mm. that you had yeah I throw I a party <laughs> damn good party <laughs> I throw good parties <laughs> then Kelly and I went totally separate I ended up on the same path together with you both I came across your work through your book fast forward finally connected in person and just fell in love with Kelly obviously she's this beautiful incredible presence and soul So inspiring, Mm -hmm. creative, all the things. Separately, I walk into your store for one of the first times, and her book is in your store. And you were like, wait, you have Kelly's book? I'm like, yeah, I did her wedding flowers. Of course I have her book. (laughs) You did her wedding flowers? (laughs) So a lot of threads bringing us together, which I love. That's great. So let's dive into Kelly. Mm -hmm. If someone doesn't have access to any of your books, your work, how do you describe what you do? I am a writer and an educator, and what I do is I help others, primarily women, explore their whole creative self. I lead writing workshops and retreats to unlock the freedom and power of creativity and expression. What kind of work do you have out there in the world that people could read? What's out there that someone can engage with? And my first published book was Boat Burn. It's through CS Books. That's how I met you, is that beautiful cover. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yes. the cover. Oh, yeah, I that art was really captivating. So lucky I to mean, we talked it. about it. When I saw the cover, I was like, where did this come from? And you were like, yeah, I got really lucky getting paired with this person. Describe oh the cover since we're listening mm-hmm. through this and yeah. someone who hasn't seen it. So the cover is a portrait of almost like a snapshot of a living room and half of the living room is filled with water and there's a woman who's diving under the water in this yellow dress that is cascading behind her and above her above the surface of the water is a chandelier and picture frames on the wall and it looks like the chandelier is swinging Mm -hmm. as if you're on a boat and the the boat chronicles my 
journey through womanhood, through femininity. I grew up on sailboats. I grew up racing sailboats. My family went through some financial instability where they went bankrupt. And I spent a month of my life sailing from New Jersey to Florida where my dad was going to relocate. So boats have been a very large part of my upbringing. And they were how I would spend time with my dad was always on the water. Mm. So I spent a lot of time on the water, staring at the sea, speaking with the sea, ruminating on life, but also listening to song lyrics. It was my dad who was my first teacher who really would say to me, it was like we were in church. He'd say, do you hear that line? That's such a beautiful line. Mm. And I would say, yeah, it is. And he'd be like, okay, now tell me why. Mm -hmm. Like what makes that line so good? And why is this universal human truth that's hitting us in the heart? Mm -hmm. So I think that from an early age, I was really drawn to the idea of how we can use words as a mode of connection. Mm -hmm. Tracy K. Smith, who used to be the poet laureate, said one thing that poetry does and all writing really does is it takes the me to a we. Mm -hmm. So it takes an individual experience and it shares that as a modality of empathy and healing and perspective. And I found that really powerful. So when I started writing Boat Burned, I felt extremely apologetic for who I was as a woman. There was Mm -hmm. a lot of issues in terms of how I felt about who I was in terms of outward, but also inward strength. And my prompt for the book was to fall in love with myself, to write myself stronger. And it was challenging. It was a really interesting examination of me looking at the reasons why it was so challenging for me and for women as a whole to love themselves. I, halfway through the book, I was talking to someone about this prompt and they were like, is it working? And I was like, no, it's not. not. (laughs) How long have you been writing? And then I like, oh gosh, um, a year. And I was like, shit. I hope I can say shit. You can't. Like, we're an explicit uh, podcast. Okay, okay. yeah. I used, if we I used are, a word in the previous episode. We had to categorize she, ourselves she, as explicit. She said, oh, okay. it's fine. There's no way to contain this, this little <laughs> potty mouth yeah. over here. Yay, I can't help let's do it. So I've been writing for a year. The prompt isn't working, and I start just really looking at. What are these false beliefs that are like leading to these pillars of pain in my life, right? What are the agreements that I've told Mm. myself about how I'm living in the world and how the world is viewing me and how I'm viewing myself as a result? And then it's like I was an excavator. I had to go back and I had to find the origin of this happened and then that happened. And then before that, and oh, Now I'm having this memory of when my great-grandmother said something when I was five years old and she pinched me and she's like, you're chubby and no man will ever love you. Oh my goodness. And that's why your dad's not here because Mm -hmm. your mom has gained too much weight. Mm -hmm. So stuff like that you don't even realize until you start unpacking and then you look at all of the symptoms of the ways that you have behaved throughout your life. Mm -hmm. And we can talk more about like even my block. Right now I'm working on essays and I'm working on a different project beyond poetry, but I'm thinking a lot about what, when we know who we are in our most powerful sense, what happens when we deny that? Mm -hmm. And when we deny who we are and who we're meant to be, it manifests in some really unhealthy ways. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the book was like looking at those manifestations and trying to write my way out of the darkness. Wow. So that was your first published work. Yes. And what did that feel like? 
That was wild. It was wonderful. I am what I call myself a feral writer, meaning that I never went to school specifically for poetry. I was a journalist for a little while, but I had the academic track that a lot of Mm -hmm. people had. And I had gone to a conference and I had seen different readings by different poets with different publishers. And I found one reading that just my soul was leaping out of its skin. It was so alive and it was so electric. And I was just like, these are my people. This is who I want to publish my book. So me being in areas from New Jersey, who's very fiery and extremely driven, (laughs) not only did I write, I wrote, they're going to publish my book. I'm super woo-woo and 77 is my favorite number. The title of the publisher was Yes, Yes. Mm -hmm. So every time I saw the number 77 out in the universe on a license plate Mm -hmm. on a I would say, yes, yes, has published my book. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes, has published my book. I probably said this 1,300 times, if not more. So then I submitted my poems to them. And instead of them picking up books, you had to submit a sample. And I was a semi-finalist out of 20 different poets. And on the list of semi-finalists were some of my poetry heroes. And it was one of the most exciting and terrifying things ever because I was like these are the people whose books I studied and now I'm being asked to compete with them so I spent the next three months I was like I'm so much closer the odds are so much better than they were when I was competing against 3,000 people so when the book got accepted they actually sent me an email with the wrong title they were like congratulations we would love to publish the title of another book and I was like Oh, and I wrote back and I was like trying to be so polite. Like, I'm not sure if this means you want to publish my book or someone else's and mistakes happen. So no big deal. I just don't know if I can celebrate because I want this so badly. And they were like, no, you can celebrate. We want your book. And I was like, yeah, typo. But I mean, once it was accepted, I rewrote 50 or 60% of it. Mm. My motto in life is don't stop until you're proud. I'm usually pretty stringent about what I put out into the world. How old were you when you got that book published? I'm just trying to do the math. I'm a writer. Um, (laughs) I I think I was 37. So it was published in 2020 in a pipeline to get a book published from the point that it's accepted to when it is distributed. It depends on the publisher, but anywhere from a year and a half to three years. So it was about two and a half years for the cycle of yes to it being in people's hands. Mm -hmm. Got it. Now let's go way back and talk about how you grew up, where you grew up in Jersey. Give us a little bit of color of your life. Yeah, that's a great question. Childhood is a big prompt. I think that I always grew up in a really creative household in that there was opportunity in everything. So we would get in the car on a Saturday morning and my mom would say, we're going on an adventure. Mm -hmm. And she would never tell us where we were going. Sometimes she didn't even know. Mm -hmm. She would just start driving. And one Saturday we were at the orchard and picking apples and then learning about the Civil War. In New Jersey, there's a lot of different sites Mm -hmm. and parks. Another time we went to a hospital, they were having gurney races with the staff and we were like, <laughs> going to see the staff do this kind of community fair I journey races. <laughs> I, it's funny because I tell Izzy all the time when we get in the car, I'm like, we're going on an adventure. And he's like, where are we going? And I'm like, I don't know. I and that. that's, and I think that 
it actually does. is the adventure is not knowing. Yeah. yeah. It allows the box to be wide open, right? Yeah. There isn't, oh, we're going to Target. So then there's like expectation of what that means. It's we're going on an adventure and it might that. have three or four stops in it or it could be a gurney race. Yeah. It sounds awesome. Yeah. It also changes the lens of your perception, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It's not, we're doing an errand, we're doing a chore. It's yes. that we're going on an adventure. Let's look for magic. Yeah. And I think that I was always trained by my family to look for magic, to look for adventure, to think about this is going to make a great story. Mm-hmm. I was also raised by a predominantly single mom in that my mom and dad were best friends, but they got separated when I was two. Um, my dad would come over for dinner on Tuesday and Thursday night and spend all day Sunday with us. Mm. Um, so they were great friends, they always say. They just weren't great at being married. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's beautiful. So that was on the East Coast. Now we're sitting on the West Coast. So connect the dots there. How did you end up here? Because you said you studied something not as obvious that you would be a poet. Yeah, I never studied poetry. So I never took a poetry class. I went to Emerson College in Boston. Mm -hmm. And I studied writing literature and publishing. Our degree trained us basically to teach at a college level, to work for a magazine, um, or to write, which... You know, if you're a writer, you don't just write something and people pay you. What a magical world it would be. That happens sometimes, um, but that's not why you do it. So I was dating someone. He lived in New Jersey and I had gone off to college and he really wanted to get married. And I was 19 and I told him, I think you're cool and I'm going to travel the world and write a novel before I ever get married. And I really didn't want him to try to come to Boston because I wanted to do my thing and explore my own self before attaching to another person. So I said, why don't you go move to someplace really beautiful and I'll come visit you. (laughs) So we made this decision together and Hawaii and California were on the list and he chose San Francisco. He was a, a cook in the Coast Guard. And I remember the first time I came to visit him in Petaluma, like it's the first place I ever came in California. And I showed up and I was like, what the shit is this? Yeah. This is not California. No. There are no surfboards. No. There are no palm trees. Yeah. There's no 90210. Yeah. I was just like, this looks like Boston. Yeah. I'm so angry. Yeah. It's cold. Yeah. So anyway, so he was only there for a little bit and then he relocated to San Diego and I went to go visit him in San Diego and I was like, oh. This is it. I was a surfer at the time. I love the ocean. And then we ended up breaking up before I graduated. And then after I graduated, I called up my best friend. And I was like, San Diego is the coolest place I've ever been on earth. What are you going to do after graduation? She's like, I don't know. And I'm like, you want to move to California? So we got in a car and we moved to California. That's amazing. And then I had a a wild California dream. (laughs) Yeah. And so I was in San Diego for a while. I was teaching. I worked as a journalist. And then I moved to Spain for a little bit. And what part of Spain? Barcelona. Okay. Yeah. Near the water. Always consistent. Yes. <laughs> so now you're in this place. That was your first published book. You're feeling really good about yourself. What's the next steps that brought you to today? So from Boat Burned to today. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is they say the message is the medium, right? So whatever the medium you're using is probably going to be as expansive or limited to what that is. So when it comes to poetry, I absolutely love poetry, and I think it's such a good way to connect with the heart and the soul, but there's such a limited audience that is engaging in poetry on a daily basis. There's an audience out there, but it's not like 
fiction or nonfiction. So right now I'm working on two different things. I'm working on fiction. I actually started as a fiction writer before I got to poetry, but there was a lot of heat and excitement around poetry. So I took this big 10-year detour, and then I decided I was going to come back to fiction and have had a lot of fun exploring two different novels that I'm writing. And then as of recently, I've started a Substack. If you're not familiar with Substack is, it is an online platform that is filled with a lot of deep thinking and deep writing. And I started writing personal essays. So I'm having a really great time engaging with women on the tough questions that our 30s and 40s bring. Mm -hmm. After we figure out who we are, and I say this in quotation marks, who we are, after we figure out where we're living, who we are, if we're mothers, if we're not, then the big questions come like, what is our purpose and are we happy? And what am I avoiding? So I'm having a really great time exploring that. I'm also working on a memoir about that trip from when I was 10 years old sailing from New Jersey to Florida and Mm. um, the emotional journey that I went on knowing that I was going to leave my dad. But we also, as I moved from state to state, we had to outrun hurricanes. My dad had to fight off a shark. There were so many different aspects that make a Wednesday in Benicia (laughs) seem like very chill sometimes. Through Substack, I've really been focused on building a creative community and through offering workshops to help people write more and bring what they have to say to the forefront. Because I think that a lot of times people think, I'm not a writer, I don't know how to do this. And I would argue that everyone is, and that so much of a, I'm not a insert creative thing is just a block in judgment. They've done so many studies though around even just writing about traumatic experiences and what that does for the healing of our soul. They have inflicted wounds on people and then they have written about a traumatic experience for four days and the wound on their hand in the group who's writing compared to the control group heals 300 times faster. Wow! It's like on a molecular level to send it out of us. There's a quote by Walt Whitman that I love that it's like, how soon the sunrise would kill me if I couldn't take it in and then send it out of me. And I think that what happens sometimes in the human experience is we take it in, we take it in, we take it in, and we don't always have the way to send it out. And sending it out can be extremely healing. Yes. With a lot of what we've been talking with you, Wendy, on healing, there's this energy that you keep within your physical body, within your emotional, mental state that if you're not putting it down, and you've said this to me many times, and I always go back to this quote, is you're carrying a lot, or are you going to put it down? Yeah. And writing is a way to put it down. But yeah. I know you have a lot of ideas and thoughts around healing. and Yeah. The through line between what you're talking about and what I've experienced in the shop is that people will come to any of my workshops, like they're do, like we're doing floral design of some sort, right? Building a wreath or working on a centerpiece. And without fail, there's one person in the group usually like a Norma type who's very high achieving in what they do really well every day for their job. Yeah. And they come in and they're like, I'm not creative. And I'm like, everyone's creative. You Mm -hmm. have to be creative as an accountant. You are problem solving for people all the time. And all of the like throughputs that are being put to you, they don't always add up or make sense, but you have to creatively come up with a solution. So I'll always tell that person that they are creative. They're just creative in their wheelhouse. And then I say, let's play with that here, right? You can do that there. Why can't you do it here? Because people will shut themselves down 
before they even open the door or the window, they'll be like, that door doesn't open, that window doesn't open. Actually, they're for a reason. You have to use it. You have to utilize it in order to exercise the things that really do need to come out. I love seeing people move Mm -hmm. through Mm -hmm. experience and get to the other side and watching that transformation happen. And I'm assuming it's similar in these groups that you're working with in Substack where the conversation that happens there is almost more rewarding than the work itself. (laughs) Because you get to be a part of someone's transformation. And even if it's just helping them get the key into the lock, it's just watching them turn the door is insane. So... Yeah, absolutely. I worked for seven years as a director of education for a poetry nonprofit, and I've done the poll of how are you feeling today? Mm -hmm. Tired, exhausted, overwhelmed, and a simple thing is then we end the workshop and the shift in energy. Yeah hopeful, excited, invigorate. Yeah. Yeah. And this was a work training that they had to be at. So the the people that I'm working with through the creative crossover, which is the name of my Substack, you see these people who are signed up that they're like, we're going to do something cool. But the way that they surprise themselves in the best way is like some of the most beautiful moments. Back when I was working nine to five for the literary nonprofit, I would still teach these workshops on the side. And my mom would be like, why are you doing this why are you killing yourself Mm -hmm. I'm like because it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever done and Mm -hmm. I love it Mm -hmm. it's being in that presence of someone shifting into a higher version of themselves Mm -hmm. where they get to say what they need to say and they get to love themselves more in that way whether the thing is proud or painful or um, really happy or grieving but the idea that they get to show up for themselves and in that they become a new person yeah get to put it down. Yeah, they get to put it down. That's Ann Carson from the glass <laughs> essay. So anyone yeah, who wants to yeah, look yeah, up yeah. the quote. Yes. I want to dive into these moments, yeah. these shaping moments of who you are. I know you have a couple in your life that have shaped you in a big way that have to do with your mother and your daughter. Mm-hmm. What did that do to inform your point of view as a writer and as a poet? What did those moments do for you? The last book that I wrote was called Future Tense. And it chronicled, I tried to get pregnant for three years and couldn't. And during this time, my, my sister... It's a beautiful title. Thank you. <laughs> my sister, she's single. We don't know if she's going to have kids. But there's a lot of pressure on me as the person who's getting married. And my mom's like, grandbabies. Uh, I just have to say, when I was at your wedding doing the flowers, <laughs> your mom and aunt were just... I love the women in your family. They are <laughs> dynamic. You. and. Thank you. When we talked about who we wanted to have on the show, she was, what about Kelly? And I'm like, Kelly who? And she's Kelly. And I was like, oh, Kelly yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, she's kick-ass. That's just the like way that you guys all navigate the world. It seems to me as an outsider that none of you really take no as like a final answer. Anyways, you have these experiences that shape this question right mm-hmm. this whole lineage is full of women who are just like yeah yep. the matriarchy yeah. as you said oh yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and even down to my mother's relationship with my dad my dad cheated on my mom he was not faithful they got married very young and she could have chosen to cut him out of our lives to be mad to do all of these yeah. things get revenge and she was like great so now this is our opportunity on how to teach our daughters what overcoming conflict to work together as a family looks like. Yeah. It was just a very different model 
So when I was trying to get pregnant and my mom moved to California to be close to the future grandchildren, which I wasn't able to have, which was... Yeah, she was telling me about her move at your wedding. And I was yeah. like, oh my God. Yeah, and my mom moved at <laughs> yeah. 68. Yeah. She lived in the same small town for 40 years and then packed up her life and came oh. cross country because it was always her dream to come to California. She loved the Beach Boys. She loved the ocean. And she always wanted to come back to her girls. Both my sister and I were in California. We migrated to the West Coast. My mom got here and it was heartbreaking infertility. I would not wish it on anyone. It was horrible but it was a dream to be together and then within six months she was diagnosed with stage four cancer Mm. I didn't know it at the time but she was given two months to live Mm. and she would say to me when are you gonna get moving on adoption or IVF or whatever and it's very hard on your marriage but she didn't want anyone to know that she had cancer no one knew we didn't know until after she died that they gave her two months to live she lived for two years she kept it from everybody But um, her priest at community congregation, because she also had cancer. So she needed to talk to someone else who had cancer. We lived a very different life during COVID and during all of these times because we never knew when it was going to be over. Mm -hmm. And things became more precious. I think becoming a mom... Um, everything becomes more precious. Everything is more fragile and emotionally it's amplified Mm -hmm. because your life is attached to a larger purpose. So my mom got to meet Nova. They lived during the same time on earth for four months and it was some of the most magical times when it comes to affecting my writing. It's always me thinking about how is my writing an echo of my mom in the past and an echo of my daughter in the future. I'm writing right now about the loneliness and weight of motherhood and about the pressure that we have on ourselves because not only as mothers are we trying to rectify and hold on to the person that we used to be, our identity, without losing ourselves in the caregiving, but we also have the pressure of whatever we're doing is going to be amplified into the future. So when it comes to writing, it made me think a lot about perspective and about how my mom would say, okay, how are we not going to take no for an answer? How are we going to bring the magic into this situation? And also one of the things about my mom was she was everyone's best friend. At her funeral, everyone was like, she was my best friend because she could listen to people so astutely that it was like, She'd known him for 15 years, even if they had just met. And I think that like with writing, that is one of the number one things that I aim for is I want people to feel listened to and I want them to feel seen and heard and reflected in the work that I put out. So when I was studying philosophy, I got stuck in aesthetics Mm. and I say stuck because that's the last thing I was studying before I decided I was never going to be able to be a career philosopher. Mm. Um, So that that interplay between the creator of a work, the work itself, and the person receiving the work, mm-hmm. and that conversation that happens is one of the most interesting parts of the human experience, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because you are creating for yourself, mm-hmm. primarily. You Absolutely. should never create for someone else because right. it's going to be trash. Yeah. But and you'll stop creating. And you'll stop creating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you create for yourself. It becomes its own thing. And then the people who engage with it take and create 
within it, right? That conversation that they have with the work might not be your intended conversation. How does that affect you as an artist? How does that feel to have people access that and engage with it? Yeah, it's a good question. Sometimes it feels wildly vulnerable. And at the same time, it feels like you have a child and they need to fall down. Yeah. (laughs) And they need to run and maybe they need to be bullied a little. Um, And like every moment that happens to that child, you're then like processing as a parent, just like every interaction with your work you're processing as an artist you know I had I wrote a poem about motherhood and I put it on Instagram and Facebook and it was interesting there was people like fighting over this poem yesterday (laughs) it was a poem that was reminiscent of me missing my younger self yes I read that yes very moving but how are they fighting oh um because a lot of people are very quick And I have found that the more removed someone is from active parenting, meaning that they're not in the thick of it, Mm -hmm. the more quick they are to dismiss the emotions of the parent, which means that if a mom is frustrated or if there's something upsetting, they're quick to say, this is going to be an important moment. Don't be frustrated. Or you have to savor every moment. Or I put up the poem and someone's, be careful what you wish for. And I was like, be careful what I wish for. What, what kind of threat about? That? What the hell does that mean? <laughs> and I understand why she wrote that comment. She had lost her child. At the same time, I was like, be careful what I wish for, because I'm saying I wish I, w- I miss when I was a size six and I could like, you know, drink gin in the bathtub and read books all night. Who doesn't miss their youth? So it's very interesting to see for me, artistic work is okay. Now, like, you send the, the work on the bus like the first yeah. day of school and you're like, okay, do what you're going to do. Go do your ripple. Yeah. Ri- like, have go. your effect. Yeah. And I, I put out an essay about something I never talked about back when I was younger that I had gotten a DUI and I wrote very honestly about what was happening when I was younger because I wanted to write, but I was too scared to write. Mm-hmm. And that I was so convinced that avoiding a dream was safer than failing at it. But I had this hole. So I was reaching for all of these things that I was like shopping too much or smoking cigarettes or drinking or sleeping with the wrong men, right? There was always this reach because there was something part of me that was not satisfied. But I was like, I did not have the guts. After getting this DUI, I decided because I could see my life imploding that I was going to write a poem a day. And I really think that Mm. single decision in my life changed my life drastically. 100% because that was the moment that instead of reaching for destruction, I reached for creation. Mm. And everything changed from that point on. But I put this essay out and I was like, oh, it's melodramatic. It's da, da, da. I like told myself all of the things and the responses were just incredible. Yeah. Of people were like, thank you. I sobbed. After a writing workshop, someone was like, you have no idea how bad I needed that essay. I had my college roommate had like people texting her that I haven't talked to in 25 years. So it's really interesting because you never know. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, this is a great poem. I love it. Or this is a great essay and it's nothing but crickets, Yeah, but you got to love your baby no matter what. <laughs> yeah, I love that one as hard as I love the one we're just talking about this and Taylor Swift and Cruel Summer, that hit and how mm-hmm. her and Jack Antonoff, they thought that was going to be the hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were like, this is it. This is, and they were waiting and waiting. And then five years later it is. So also you really never know what the creative lifespan of any piece of art is. It's hard to tell. So. Yeah. 
it's just, it's bigger than me. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. And I let it go. Yeah. I let that. And that also, I think that a lot of people who are nervous about pursuing a creative endeavor, and a lot of people are afraid to even open the box because they're afraid of what other people are going to say about mm, that box. Yeah. And I think the way that you approach it is great and strong and gives people a roadmap to follow and that they can detach from the work. It sounds like you are not the work. The -hmm. work is something that came out of you, but it is not you. And I think a lot of people feel like their work is them. Mm. And so when an attack comes onto the work, a song gets shredded to pieces or like it's a personal thing. And that's brilliant to be able to hear a way to deal and detach yeah that's what I heard (laughs) to be a piece right to say okay I've done all I can Mm -hmm. and whatever will happen that idea of releasing a creative endeavor is the same for anything any expectation in your life right once you can detach and just say I did what I could yeah and we'll see yeah Yeah. so we want to talk about transactional love now we have this really colorful picture of who you are How are people engaging with you? How are they transacting with you? And who is that audience? What's their psyche? Why are they, quote unquote, buying from you? And are you intentional about reaching them? Like you said, putting work out there and seeing who it reaches. That's a good question. I don't know if I'm intentional about reaching. When marketing, they talk about who is your audience. Yeah, who's your audience and who's your like avatar client. Exactly. In writing for me, that does not happen at all. I have the voice of teachers in my head and great writers who will move my eye or help me tighten a piece, but it's never that I am creating X piece for that. When it comes through the transaction, I think a lot of the transaction of how people know me is through two things. I think it's through like sharing work on Instagram or through workshops. So because I taught high school for 10 years, wow, I taught high school for 10 years and I've written a lot of curriculum, which they call craft books on how to write. Writing and teaching together feels like they're almost inseparable. So usually if people know me as a teacher, they then know me as a writer. Mm-hmm. And if people know me as a writer, a lot of times they then know me as a teacher because I think the identities are so close. They think that it is a hustle as an artist, especially if you want to make art your full-time right. gig, which I do. I spent so many years working nine to five, writing from 5 a.m. to 8 a.m., or from six to eight, I've spent many hours not with the people I love because I'm trying to work on this career after I'm earning a paycheck. For me, as I get older, the time is getting more and more precious. So I'm trying to refine the transaction for me is that I've started a monthly subscription model that people can come and they can read my work and support it. But there's also community opportunities that I make where you can come and write a poem through a workshop or you can be a part of book club or you can come and talk about accountability. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, the space has been for people who are more practiced, but I'm interested in opening up a place for beginners because I know so many people who are like, 
someone texted me yesterday and they're like, can you teach me how to write a poem? Mm -hmm. This is like a normal text that I get. And I'm like, I would love to. And I think that there's a lot of people who they have a lot of things to say, Mm -hmm. but they're hungry for the permission Mm -hmm. to say it. And Mm -hmm. they're hungry for the place to feel safe enough Mm -hmm. to say those things. Mm -hmm. So that's really where the transaction is happening. It is teaching, again, in quotes, but it's just facilitating a space of safety and expression touch on the social media piece of it too going back 10 15 years i don't think people were digesting literature this way so how has that changed the the industry in in general and then how are you using that yeah i love this question i just wrote a poem yesterday i'm 42 and the title of the poem is 42 and one of the lines is it was the year i quit believing in everything but myself and i think that hell yes (laughs) It's literally what I keep saying. Good for you. Yeah. It's really interesting because I don't quite believe in any institution at the moment. I came up through a very traditional publishing route. I wrote a poem. I sent it off. They said yes. They said no. And I did not share my work much on Instagram or Facebook. And then I have seen the model change that we don't necessarily need in 2023, the middleman anymore. Yeah, I was following Ron's writing on Instagram, and then he published a book from all of his little missives that I carry in the shop. It's just like exactly that. It spins things on its head. People have access and they can devour that content and then the publishers are like wait we need to try and get in there we need a piece of that pie Mm -hmm. and I think that's an interesting switch up it changes the power dynamic quite a bit it definitely does so what role are publishing companies do you see them playing now if it's not what they were playing as like a gatekeeper yeah so the biggest role of publishing companies is printing and distribution right Mm -hmm. because if you're going to be a self-published writer to have it printed to figure out the shipping you're not going to even have time to write if you're engaging and all it's a business right so I think that one of the things is that now writers are using Instagram and social media and and TikTok if you're have the time yeah (laughs) if you're not me you're using TikTok (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm pushing it away yeah and this is this is why particularly like you know Substack right now there's 17 thousand sub stacks yeah I somehow got signed up for one it's about Paris I don't remember doing it interesting I feel like somebody are you having some wine maybe (laughs) on one of these podcasts I know know, it's pretty funny uh yeah so there's 17,000 sub stacks right people writing 17,000 there's 30 million users wow it is of the belief in the writing industry that Substack is the next wave of podcasting. That okay. there was not a lot of podcasts and then it became a more heavily populated space. And that what's going on is Substack is people are writing and agents and publishers are actually coming to Substack. Got it. And same thing with Instagram. But I think that Instagram, there's a variety of different kinds of writing, right? There right. can be, oh, um, F Mondays, right? <laughs> there can be something that's like super, super deep. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes have Mondays, uh, but there's a range, um, and Substack is it tends to be like a deeper. But I'm here for all of it. Yeah, like I'm here for all of it, and I just I think that unfortunately a lot of especially academic institutions have been built to 
exclude people Mm -hmm. and to say you belong and you don't. And I just don't find that a very productive conversation on earth ever. I actually agree entirely in that. I think that the more times you get people out of the room, the less growth for everyone. So like maybe there's this level of F Mondays and then there's like other people doing like really intense, beautiful things. Mm -hmm. But the F Mondays person is learning from this really intense, beautiful thing. And then that person who's doing this beautiful thing is also F Mondays, right? And there's, we have women said I contain multitudes. Like I can contradict myself. So what? It's been an interesting shift for me though, because the poem that might win the award is not the poem that's always going to perform well on Instagram. Right. So then there's a whole different reckoning to put your art out there. And sometimes it does well and sometimes it doesn't. And I think that you have to have a very strong sense of who you are to put yourself out there on social media and to be okay regardless of the circumstances. Right. So from your point of view, what kind of icon is the independent bookstore on Main Street? USA in our communities should it evolve I think it's definitely playing a role in our community and I think it's really important especially for the discovery of books through children because children are not going to go to Amazon right they're not going to go wherever and especially in the big box store Target or Walmart there's not a place to engage bookstores are really important I think more than bookstores are libraries are really Mm. the most important in my opinion for access libraries bring so much in and I think that one of the things that For most part, almost everyone's always welcome in a library. Yeah. And I have seen the vibe change from bookstore to bookstore. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that I really hope to see more in Benicia is I love they do custom gift wrapping. They do all of these things. Mm -hmm. When I need a gift that I feel like is really thoughtful, I go into that bookstore and I love it. I wish that we had more events to bring people in and to utilize that community space. That's a good point. In general, looking at a bookstore's venue and the design of the bookstore, I think, should keep that in mind. If maybe there isn't a local library, that maybe that could be the canvas to bring people together, but then you have to plan for that and think about that in your floor plan and how you are able to welcome as a venue is a different mindset than selling books off shelves. I agree. It depends on the kind of community that the bookstore wants. Some people are in bookstores because they're quiet people and they like books and that's where it ends. And then other people want to bring more people to have some kind of community reading, open mic. It would be great to see bookstores partner with other spaces. So making sure that there's a way that to have a larger community conversation around literature. I want to switch a little bit and take off your author hat and put on your shopper hat. Yes. I, I was really excited I'm about this. here yes. for yes. it. <laughs> so yes. I'd love to hear your... Right now, you're a mother, you're a wife, you're a sister. How do you think about the way you spend? What do you splurge on? Just give me your psyche around how you approach shopping. Oh, I was so excited to talk about this. (laughs) I'm so excited. (laughs) Oh my God. So the two things that I really splurge on, and I think one is probably more relevant than the other, is travel Mm -hmm. and clothing. Mm Mm-hmm. And okay, three things. And really good restaurants yeah, uh, and yeah. wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. experience, right? Yeah. Spending yeah. time. Yeah, I'm a very experiential person. And because of that, I have really, again, my 40s are about really asking these hard questions. And one of the things that I have noticed in my life is that. I'm addicted to shopping. I love shopping. I love fashion. I'm not addicted to shopping. I'm addicted to fashion. 
it's wearable art. It is just, oh my God, I see a dress and I can picture the 12 versions of my life in it. And how yes. am I going to be me if I don't have this dress because yep. I'm going to get to this villa in France, whatever I, it is. I literally have a wardrobe or pieces of a wardrobe for when I get to Paris someday <laughs> in my closet. Hence the sub stack. And, so, and, so the and sometimes I still wear those pieces out and I'm like, these are my Paris days. And yeah. I just pretend I'm in Paris because it's absolutely that. true. Yeah. Clothes will transform. It's a different story. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's a different story. There's yeah. is it Oscar Wilde who says good clothes open all doors, yes. right? And I very much believe that. Yeah. I, and I believe that you are wearing art and like that your clothes speak to who you are. It is wearable art, but it expresses so much who you more. Are. Right. It amplifies. It completely yeah. amplifies. Yeah, so yeah. I think that one of the things that I noticed is I can drop a lot of money very fast and go down the rabbit hole of the beautiful things. I am an experiential person and I like to see that version of myself. But one of the things is there are infinite versions of myself, which could be very expensive. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways that I have changed the way I consume is I rent my clothes. So mm-hmm. I rent my clothes through Newly, which is an amazing app. And I have clothes saved in what's a closet. And you go through and when I feel the urge to shop, I open up the app and I save the clothes I like for the future. Mm-hmm. And then once a month, it's $88. So it's like 96 tax. I get a little package with these clothes and I can wear them as much as I like for the 30 days or I can keep them longer. Mm. I'm not responsible for tears, for stains. I don't have to clean them. And then I can buy the ones I like for anywhere from 20 to sometimes 70% off. Yeah. So it's amazing because sometimes you get stuff with the tags on that is brand new, but sometimes you get stuff that's been worn a couple times and that way we're not engaging in fast fashion. Yes. Right. Um, and I'm also knowing that like, I'm a moody girl. I might not wear that dress at the end of the month. Yes. Sometimes I'll wear something and I'm like, oh, I was so excited. I have spent <laughs> lots of money on stuff that I'm like, oh, I love this. And then I've worn it once. And then yeah. it just hangs in my closet and I feel guilty. Yeah. So I think that has been a really big way that I have been engaging in my need for this thirst and this art and these new stories. Yeah. But living a lot of different possibilities in a way that is kinder to the environment against fast fashion and is not as expensive as my life once was (laughs) (laughs) going through a purge and it's this guilt of did I wear it how much did I pay is this going to the landfill like can I repurpose like all the things so I do think the sharing economy is something that needs to be more accessible I will say as in person my family is part of Buy Nothing Benicia. My sisters were part of Plant Swap. My sister is always, okay, cool, this person's picking up this. And she's always moving the energy. Mm-hmm. And I try to do the same thing with books. I bring them to the library. Yeah. I bring clothes to the thrift store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's um, so many free little libraries around Benicia. Yeah, I mean, there's so many reasons not to throw things out. Yeah. And I've been that person who didn't have a lot of money and found something in a thrift store that made me feel beautiful at some yeah. point. I get sad when I throw out clothes that I love because maybe... but. I always think our story is ended, but you might go on to be with someone else and there's a whole different story there. So I think think that also makes it special. You don't know where this piece has been. I I got this purse that was $2 at a museum (laughs) resale store. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. It's so great. And I love carrying around because people are like, oh my God, it's amazing. It looks vintage. I was like, I have no idea who owned this before. It's $2 and it's beautiful. Incredible. (laughs) Anyway, so is there anything that you've splurged on lately that was such a good purchase felt good with retail therapy am I allowed to say like a place yeah okay yes there is 
My dad lives in Fort Lauderdale in Florida, and I am like a coveter of turquoise, teal water, ocean. Love it. I love the way I feel when I'm in the ocean and like just the freedom it brings is very similar to creativity. And I decided that when we were in Fort Lauderdale, we were going to go to a strip called 30A. And 30A is 10 miles long and it is some of the clearest water, like clearer than the Virgin Islands. And the sand is like white quartz that's been ground down. And I How shallow is it? It's pretty shallow, actually. So it was perfect for a toddler. Yeah. And they call it the Gulf, the Lake of Mexico. It's the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. So a toddler can be in the surf. If they're in the surf, it's Stinson. They're like pounded. Yeah, exactly. Nova's like me, scared of the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. And here she's the Moana. Like, I really want to go here. So I just said to my family, I'm going to take us all to 30A for a week. And it was so magical to see my daughter interacting with the ocean to be with my father, who's her grandfather, who has taught me to love the ocean um, and my sister, who I shared so many memories with. So I think that the biggest splurge was that. And then also a cabin in the redwoods with my husband for our fifth anniversary. Um, Yeah. Just going away and being as close to nature as possible, but also very comfortable and lavish. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. That feels good to me. I want to end on what are we transacting on for Kelly? Yeah. So if I could be so humble to ask people to transact, readership is the most valuable thing for an author. So I think subscribing to my Substack, which is kellygracethomas.substack.com and following me on Instagram, which is at kellygracethomas.com. And I think once you get there, the rest will lead the way. So it's being able to compensate for the inspiration, the healing, all the things, words are so simple, but so powerful. And I don't think we always pause to think, wow, this changed my day or this made me reflect in a deeper way. And what am I giving back? Especially if we want writers to continue to create for us. Yeah. So I just listened to Audible, mm-hmm. The Four Agreements. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. You um, highlighted a couple in our conversation, but... The number one is to be impeccable with our word. And I think that when we engage with writing that is impeccable, we're able to actually be more impeccable ourselves with our Mm. own words and our own work. Signing up and subscribing to an artist's channel or whatever it is really does say I support what you're bringing into the world, the light that you're shining. And I will take your nuggets knowing that they're impeccable and that you've done your best. By showing what you can do, you allow others to see themselves doing those same things too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really valuable to um, to subscribe. Yeah, and, and let's talk about the, the yeah, let's talk about the You can subscribe for free or you can pay $7 a month or $77 a year. And if you pay either or... You did you set those numbers? I did, yeah. Yeah, because the 77 is important to you. Yeah. I registered that. And the numbers are fairly low for what I'm offering. So yeah. I'm in a experimental phase. I always say I'm building yeah. the model, the plane in the air. But for $7 a month or $77 a year, you get one monthly workshop and one experience in what I call the creative club. So the creative club can offer anything from 
a community conversation around creativity, a book or media club, or a feedback session where you can learn how to tighten your work. It also offers exclusive content to essays and poems that I've written that I'm not sharing anywhere else. It's the only place I'm cutting out the middleman. I'm not bringing it to the publishers right now. It's just me direct to audience. Um, Or you can pay for a higher level, which is 177. And that includes a half an hour clarifying vision of me about like with me of what you want to write and what you really want to say and how you can best say it. That's great. I'm subscribing right now. As you speak. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you told me that. Thank you. I yeah. want to thank you both so much for oh all of the love that you're putting in this. Your time, the beauty and light that you're spreading this has been mm-hmm. such an honor and so much fun. Oh, so, thank you. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. I love you. We're very happy that you agreed to do our little. And honored. <laughs> yeah. Yay. <laughs> Same. This is Wendy and Norma. We love hearing from you. Your comments, your likes your stars all of the things really resonate with us so tell us what's working for you so we can continue to deliver that magic every single week this is wendy and norma inviting you to transact with love